Hi, I'm Anna McEwen, and this is The Epic Narrative. And now, my dad, Bob Switzer. So, I know, so uh, yesterday, last week, whenever, whenever this is coming out, we we leave right with the, we, we have Mephibosheth, who kind of goes back and forth with with Zibia who obviously was Zibia was had obviously been loyal to David and provided for David and loved David but Mephibosheth was it was at least questionable as to what happened but then he shows and in essence shows himself as proof that he's been loyal and then there was the whole like David's like all right listen you you're both loyal and you're both awesome and you know what just divide all of Jonathan's uh, property and livestock amongst yourselves. From David's perspective, it, this is all good. I, I get it. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pick sides. Let's just celebrate each other. Let's celebrate that we both were loyal to me, to the kingdom, to the culture that we were developing, and the two of you divide up what's good. And Mephibosheth was like, "All right, fine. Actually." I don't really need all of that. I don't the in, you know the the income is irrelevant to me because I stay at the palace and you take care of me. So let's just I'll just stay with you. Zibia can and his 15 sons or whatever can have all the all the livestock and all the goods. And then and then you have this other character that comes on the scene in verse uh 31 it is uh I want to call him Brazili, but I, I know that's not his name. Uh, Bazilla, Bazilli, Bazilla. I still, it's, I wish it was the R was somewhere else because it would be Brazil, but it's Bazilla, Bazilla. Yeah, okay. So you've said it six times, Bob. We know you can't say it, and we know it's not right, but it's close enough, so we'll go with it. Okay, good. So Bazilla comes in, and now he has, he's a, he's he's got a long story here that he basically alludes to so i'll just kind of i'll read it and then we'll talk about it so he's of of giladetti also came down from from uh rogalem which is where he lives across the jordan with the king to send him on his way from there now he was very old 80 years old he had provided for the king during his stay in manaheim and and he was a very wealthy man the king david says to brazali brazili uh, cross over with me, stay with me in Jerusalem. I'll provide for you. And he answered the king, how many more years will I live that I should go up to Jerusalem with the king? I'm 80 years old. Can I tell the difference between what is enjoyable and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and what he drinks? Can I hear the voices of male and female singers? Why should your servant be an added burden to the king, the Lord, my king? Your servant will cross over the Jordan with the, with the king for a short distance, but why should the king reward me in this way? Let your servant return that I may die in my own town near my tomb of, of the, my father and my mother. And here your servant, you know, Kim him, let him cross over with the Lord. And, oh, my mom's calling. Okay, I'll get back to this. <laughs> there, my mom's uh, doing well, everyone. She's amazing. She, uh, interesting transition, Bob, because she's slightly older than this character is. 
My mom's in her 80s. I think she's at the time of this recording, she's 82. But don't tell don't don't tell everybody. Don't tell everybody. Just just know she's in her 80s. So so when I read this, like that's the context I have. Like she's as old. He, this guy is as old as my mom, or may, uh, maybe you know a couple years younger, but in the general uh, demographic. And he's like. You know, he said, here, take, you know, take my servant, let him cross over with you. And the king uh, said, I will, you know, Achilleum shall cross over with me and I will do for him whatever you wish and anything you desire for me, I will do for you. And so all the people crossed the Jordan and the king crossed over and the king kissed Barzillai and bid him farewell and Barzillai returned to his home. All right. So we're going to, we're going to, we're going to stop there because then, <laughs> Oh, and things get ugly. So in contrast of the characters that are there, and I think that's why these various characters are highlighted, is you get a picture of kind of the mess of people that had showed up to, quote, welcome the king back. So you have Shemi, right, who cursed David on his way out, who served uh, in the in the military with Saul. He was probably one of the commanders of Saul who had maybe even been part of the group of 3,000 people that had chased David all around the wilderness. He swore his loyalty to Absalom. You know, he meets David and pleads for mercy and receives it, which is awesome. But that's one type of characters, uh, a set of characters that are there, people that are that that had turned their back individually on David, and they want to make sure David knows Hey, haha, I'm with you because you won the battle and you're super cool and let's just get along, right? Let's forget all the craziness. <laughs> and then you got Mephibosheth who was maligned or falsely accused of not supporting David. And he's trying to make things right with David on his before he comes over. Because once he crosses the Jordan, right, that's the symbolic, that's the symbolic move. That's the part that communicates to all the elders that are there David is back in the country David has has set the wheels in motion for what his kingdom is going to you know going to look like moving forward so David David interacts with Mephibosheth and Zibia and and um and Shemi and he shows mercy and he shows uh you know he facilitates uh equality and um and then you have this guy. Now, this guy was uh, 80 years old. Okay, he's. it says he, he comes from great wealth. He's a very wealthy man. And basically, it says that he provided for the royal family during during their stay at Man, Man Mahamanim. He, he, he's the one who was sending down the livestock, the wine, the wheat, the barley. He was he was basically underwriting David's exile for the entire royal family and their staff. Now he wasn't the only one, but he was probably, you know, it, it would be like uh, it would be like the the wealthiest man in a in a community or in a in a town, right? And there's there's this influx of refugees, and they're all needing food provision, uh, you know, places to stay and they're finding places to stay. And people, but people are like, you know, the, the, um, the, oh, 
not mercy ships. What do I want to say? The uh, food pantries are overwhelmed. So what do we do? Well, this it, it would be like the wealthiest guy in the region says, you know what? I'll take care of it. I'll I'll write the checks. You guys provide the food. Now, in this case, he didn't write checks. He actually he he either bought or provided all the livestock and wheat and grain and barley and and wine that they needed. He made sure that the royal family was cared for. So all like I I think what what did we determine? We had 600 troops, probably a couple hundred of the royal family and staff. So we have about 800 people that he's been providing for for months. In essence, writing the check, making things happen. And, of course, David understands that. He knows who this guy is, but he doesn't necessarily see him because he lives in a town that's another uh, 15 or 20 miles away. But he's the wealthiest man in the region or one of them. And in a, in a agrarian society such as they lived in, like a 20-mile distance, isn't that isn't that huge? So, anyways, all that's going on. So that's who he is. And David basically says to him, he says, you know what, cross over with me and stay with me in Jerusalem. I will provide for you. Now, <laughs> that's a one-sentence one explanation of what David's saying. David's saying, listen, you, you, what you did for me, I want to reciprocate. I want to give you the best retirement plan that I know of. As far as I know, the best retirement plan in the country. I want you to come live with me. I'm going to make sure you have a place to stay. I'm going to make sure you always have food. I'm going to make sure you have servants. I'm going to make sure that you have a comfortable uh, um, carriage to ride in. I'm going to make sure that there are, you know, basically you will want for nothing the rest of your life. You're not going to have to worry as to whether or not you're making money this year. Like we're going to take care of all that. All your all your lands, all your livestock, all of that will be taken care of by others. You get to just live with me. You can you can be part of uh, banquets, part of council meetings, part of uh, special events, part of worship nights. Everything I do is going to be welcome to you because you provided for us in a way that literally I can't repay. So he offers to this guy an amazing retirement plan. It's it's the best uh, it's the best the world has to offer. And the guy turned him down. He basically, he's, he says, listen, I only came here to show you that I honor and love you. That I wanted, I wanted the world to know that I didn't just do this for my, for political gain. I didn't do this for a retirement plan. I didn't do this so that if you won the battle, I would get, you know, I would get some sort of reward. There were, you know, there's a lot of people. There's, there's a lot of reasons to give, and, there, and a lot of, and people give for different reasons. And there, are, uh, you know, I, I work at a church, and there are many people who give for, for, yeah, for different reasons. And a few of them will give because of the influence it brings them. And I, you know, you, when, when you know that's happening, it's. It's hard sometimes when you see that their their check or you see their donation and you know, oh, here we go. Like, what what are they going to want to do? What do they want to buy the church that we don't really need, but they think we should have? 
And now they've given this money and now they're going to come in and kind of direct the money or they're going to, um, you know, look for a place of, a, of authority or a place of influence. And that doesn't just happen at church. That happens all over the world. It's just a it's a heart issue, right? It's an identity issue. Somebody's trying to be something and they think that this will help them get there. This particular character, uh, Brazilla, <laughs> Brazilla, Bar, Barzilla, Bar, it's Bar. Okay, Barzilla. He he's letting the world know. Listen, I didn't do I didn't do this for anything other than I think David's awesome, and I'm not looking to get wealthier. I'm not looking to expand my influence. I mean, what David offered him was a great retirement plan, but he could have easily said, you know what, I've got, uh, I'd actually like, if, I'd like more livestock. I'd like you to, re, you know, I'd like to maybe double what I gave you. I'd like some financial compensation. When you come into your into your kingdom, remember me. That would have been a way for him to respond in which he, he basically would have been would have been saying, I'm not coming with you, but I'd like I'd like a reward sent my way. I'd like a payback. Of some kind. When you honor somebody for who they are, when you honor them uh, because of of what they've done, you don't do so for some sort of kickback. And I think uh, Barzilla is is put in this in this story one because of of what he did, but mostly because of the contrast he brings to the other people that are there. You've got people that are begging for mercy. You got people that are begging for political influence. You got people that are, that are, uh, you know, are hoping that that in some way uh, David will ignore the fact that they supported Absalom, and they're all getting what they want. David is ignoring it. David is showing mercy. David is showing forgiveness. And here, David wants to take an opportunity to honor a man who honored him, to give influence and a position of of authority slash position of prominence to a man who is not motivated by power and not motivated by influence. Somebody who understands who he is and doesn't do things in order to get things back. And that really comes from a position of, of identity. It comes from a position of somebody who understands who he is, and he's not trying to be someone else. He's the, and he's not trying to, to push himself on other people or his ideas on other people. He really just loved David, and he wanted to honor him. He really just saw a bunch of refugees that had moved into a nearby city, and he said, I, you know what? I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. He's he's a fabulous character. Barzilli. Bar, it sounds Italian, doesn't it? Barzilli. But I'm sure it doesn't sound anything like an Italian name if you say it in Hebrew. Oh, oh yeah. I want the story. Uh, so what he says, send, send, uh, you know, Kim, Kim him will go with you. So Kim him is the man's son, which who's probably. 60, right? Maybe <laughs> maybe maybe younger. He might be in his 50s, but he's no like little boy. He's no, <laughs> it's just funny. Like here, take my son. 
this guy probably had a wife and and kids and livestock and and property of his own. Uh, but Barzilli's like, here, uh, I'm gonna I, listen, King. I'm gonna come over with you for a short distance. I'm basically gonna hug you goodbye. I'm gonna make sure everybody knows that I've walked you into your kingdom. I've stayed with you. I've honored you all the way to the end. And I want to go back to my town. I want to go back to where I live, where I grew up. I want to be buried near my mother and father. Listen, your retirement plan is awesome. But to be fair, let's let's look at me, okay? I can't tell the difference between what's what's enjoyable, what's not. I can't taste things anymore. I don't know what a great, you know, chunk of lamb is and what a horrible chunk of lamb tastes like. It's all the same to me now. <laughs> I don't know, you know, I don't know what a good cup of wine tastes like or what a bad cup of wine tastes like. It all tastes like liquid to me. It's all the same. It's all blended. My, I'm just too old to enjoy what you're offering me. You're offering me this lavish lifestyle of, of opulence and, and, you know, and influence. And I honestly, it's not the life I want. I want to go back to where I came from. I want to sleep in my own bed. I want to sleep with my wife. I want to hang out with with my friends. I and when I die, whenever that is, I don't want to be carried all the way back and buried with my my mother and father. I just want to die there. I want to be there and just be, you know, carried into the tomb where they are. But he's like, "Here, how about my son?" And maybe maybe that was a conversation he had had with his son. Maybe maybe within the framework of what ifs because i'm sure barzilli had to know the king if if he wins this battle there's a good chance i you know he's going to offer me some sort of role and i'm guessing the idea was floated to him a couple times and he probably just kind of laughed or chuckled it off or said don't worry about it. you know we'll see what happens we'll see what happens and then the battles won and and david is spending those next three, four weeks setting up his arrival back into the country and he's getting messages back from the ten tribes of Israel and he reaches out to the bottom two tribes of Judah and and Judah's like, oh yeah, yeah, we'll we'll welcome you back too. And and the ten tribes of Israel are already at the at the river waiting for his arrival. They're all camped out there, a thousand plus people. And then Judah shows up with their probably thousand people and they're camping out in the area, and everybody's waiting for David. And David knows what he's going to walk into is kind of a hornet's nest of political and personal vying of influence and power. He understands what that's like. He knows how to handle it. And he looks at Barzilli, and he thinks, this is a guy I don't have to worry about. This is a guy I could trust. This is a man I could talk to about life. And I have a, I have a, a sense internally and I, I can't prove this in any other way than my my imagination i have a sense that he looked at barzilli like a father and he said to himself there's a guy i can talk to as a dad he brings wisdom and influence that i i need remember he lost ahithophel who i'm sure he looked at as a father figure for years who had been through the wilderness with him and then had betrayed him because of what david did when he raped his granddaughter Bathsheba. So he's minus that in his life. Remember he had lost Jonathan there in the in the the final battle with Saul and 
man, you know, that's another incredibly close personal friend that he that he missed out on. And Joab's been a good, loyal friend, except for the times that Joab goes off the rails and does what he wants. And, and David knows I can't really trust my my total self to Joab because Joab will take advantage of me if he really believes he's he's doing it for the right reasons. Like I don't I don't think Joab was malicious in his plannings. Like I'm going to rebel against David and show him who's boss. I really believe that Joab's motives every time was this is what's best for the country. This is what's best for David. This is what's best for me. But David knew I can't be totally myself with him. And I think I think his whole life, and I, I know I dealt with this back when Jonathan died in the podcast, but Jonathan was a person that David could be completely himself. And since that time, since Jonathan's death, Jonathan has had to be himself at certain levels with certain people. I don't think there was one, what we would call one intimate friend whom he could really be himself with all the time. He didn't have to hold anything back from, you know, whether it's flippant comments that that Jonathan knew, you know, David doesn't really mean that. I can, you know, laugh that one off to, uh, you know, to struggles that David was going through. Like how to deal with the pressure of shifting a culture of fear and hate that Saul had created, like what it was going to be like when he was king and how to move the culture back into a place of of hope and love and peace. And all of those conversations he could have with Jonathan, but since then he's had to have seg- segregated, segmented, seg- different conversations with different people. I don't know what word that is. I mean, I do. I think I do. I have to, but I'm not going to think of it now. So I think uh, Barzilli was was that father figure that he had lost in Ahithophel, and he probably realized that Ahithophel had kind of stopped being that father figure to him several years ago. And although he didn't pursue it as to why, he kind of knew, ah, it probably has to do with Bathsheba. It probably has to do with what I did. But, you know, he's still here. He's still loyal. He's still a friend. I just can't really share with him the struggles I'm having because of what I did to his granddaughter. And he just hadn't found that father figure yet. I think in Barzilli, he saw it. He was like, there's a guy I can talk to as a father. There's a man who can bring me the wisdom of time and experience. And Barzilli understands that and basically says, I don't, I don't want that role. I want to go back home. I want to do what I do well, and I want to die there. But I'll give you my son, because I think in the in the course of life, Barzilli had that conversation with his son, and and probably said, "Listen, if uh, if David offers me a, a place in his kingdom, I I want to pass it off to you." And and evidently, uh, Kimim Kimhim Kimham. Kim Ham, Ham, I don't know. He uh, <laughs> he's in agreement with it. Now I don't know if he agreed right away or if he you know if he went, went home talked it over with his wife. Um, but the retirement plan worked for him. 
And maybe he was thinking, listen, I, I don't, you know, dad can run the, run the store back here until he dies. And I can, I, I'll go back. I'll go with David. Like that's a good role that brings a lot of influence to our, to our family. And it'll open up doors of marketing and doors of trade that, you know, we wouldn't have had before. So he takes the offer and, and David understands what's going on. And he understands that, uh, Barzilla didn't want the role that David was offering to him. And, uh, he, David says, yes, I'll take your son with me and I'll do for him whatever you at, whatever you wish. Anything you desire me, I'll do for you. So he under, he, he lets Barzilli know. He understands that, listen, your son's with me. But if you need anything, just let him know. If you need me to open up, you know, sign a treaty, if you need me to send you protection, if you need more land, if like whatever you need, let me know. And I'll, I'll give it to your son because it's really giving it to you. And that was kind of the, the last conversation that he had before he crossed over. So when they, this is the, stay with me now. So it says, when the king crossed over, oh, no. So it says, so all the people crossed the Jordan. And then the king crossed over. So when, again, uh, you know, it's, it is what it says. All the people crossed over. So they all splash across the water together. Now, you know, there were there were multiple people that had crossed and crisscrossed and back and forth and all that sort of thing, but now it's again kind of a ceremonial ceremonial deal. Everybody crosses the fords at the of the River Jordan. And they all get involved in carrying things, carrying people, carrying whatever they could to say, I'm helping David. I'm a part of bringing David back to the country. And they get all the way across. And when he gets across, Barzilli's there. And he it's just noted, the king kissed Barzilli and bid him farewell. And Barzilli returned home. There's, there's just, because it's emphasized, that's why, I, that's why I, I think the representation of who he is to David meant a lot to David. And David wanted people to know this is a man of honor. This is a man that I trust. This is a man who um, is worthy. This is a man of integrity. Uh, this this was a this was a big uh, rep, uh, big event. If you're watching, all the political people that had crossed, all the ones that are vying for influence and power, they would have they would have loved to have had some one-on-one -on -one attention from David to to get a hug or a high five or or anything along that line. But David crosses the river with everyone else. I'm sure he was carried on shoulders or on a cart or something because lots of people wanted to make sure that David got across and that they were a part of it. So he gets over there and he stops the whole parade and he pulls over Barzilli and he probably has a few close words with him and they hug and he kisses him, and Barzilli turns, and he crosses back over the river. Now, this is, a, this is an 80-year-old man, but he walks, you know, he walks back home. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty crazy. And so when everything's kind of calm, I kind of picture it kind of calm, kind of quiet, and, <laughs> and, and uh, the Barzilli leaves, and when he gets over to the other side of the river, 
all the politics start again in earnest. <laughs> Soon all the men of Israel were coming to the king and saying to him, why did our brothers, the men of Judah, steal the king away and bring him and his, and his household across the Jordan together with all of his men? So the men of Israel come to David, and, and this isn't just a one-time thing. It's not like they had a meeting. It said soon all the men of Israel were coming to the king of, of, and saying to him. This was, this was like a, uh, a, a, a stream that turned into a brook that turned into a flood. The ten tribes of Israel wanted David to know that Judah came in second. That's really what they're trying to say. Listen, we were down here first. We were the first ones to walk. We sent you messages long before Judah. Uh, and we've, we've heard you actually had to ask Judah to come here. Well, we want to know, we want to know, like, why are they taking credit for bringing you back? Why are they the ones that it, that are patting themselves on the back and telling everyone that they have brought David back to, to the nation? We're the ones who did that. There's way more of us than them. There's 10 tribes. There's only two up from the south. Like, what is going on, David? Why? We want more credit. We want more influence. We want positions in your government. You can't, you can't just give everything to the, to, to the southern two tribes. See, they're expecting, they're expecting David to act like their relative Saul. If you remember way back in this story, Saul gave positions of power, influence to people who didn't earn it, didn't deserve it, had no idea how to do it. But he gave it to them because of who they were. They were relatives, and they, in his mind, they were they were loyal, and they were fearful of what he'd do if they weren't loyal. They wanted the lands. They wanted more power. So they would do whatever it took to keep it or to get more. And that meant obeying Saul and supporting Saul and telling Saul that everything was great when his ideas weren't so great. And they they come from that sort of uh, lineage. So they expect David to do the same. And they're looking at the, at the tribes of Judah and they're saying, no, no, like we need to be influential. We need positions of power. If you don't, if you don't give it to us, like we're going to be mad. This isn't fair. It's not fair. They're being victims. They're looking at the circumstances. They're not looking at the heart of David. They're looking at the circumstances. And they're saying to themselves, this isn't going to work out in our favor. This is going to turn bad. We need to influence David. We need to start. We, we need to start now. And so the trickle became a stream, became a brook, became a river of people trying to influence David. And Judah, that those elders, they they see what's happening. They see the people from from the top from the top ten. I keep doing that from the northern ten tribes. Keep coming in and saying, David, what about us? What about us? What about us? David, what about us? Remember, we're the good guys. We're the guys who brought you here. David, remember, you know, it was my family that did this. It was, listen, my family kicked out the elder that supported Absalom. We, we are all for you. We've always been for you. There's never been a time we weren't for you. Even when Saul was king, we were for you. Like there was just all of this flattery, all of this boisterous pride, arrogance, self, 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 
promoting, my goodness, I couldn't get that word out of me, self-promoting that was going on. And Judas steps up and says, wait, well, we're not going to be left out. We did this because the king is closely related to us. What are you angry about? Have you, you know, and then, well, then they ask these questions. Have we eaten any of the king's provision? Have we taken anything for ourselves? So the, so Judah sees the, the, the politicking that's going on from the northern ten tribes, and they step in, and they, it's, they go after the tribes. They go after the elders. And I'm sure David's aware of this because David is a wise leader, and he knew that that there was trouble in his country because basically they just had a civil war. There's, there's, there's no way around that. David has seen this boiling, right? Uh, this pot, <laughs> the bubbles were forming and he's, he's sensing that everything's getting really hot and, and the water's starting to bubble and now it's starting to, you know, become uh, violent in its bubbling. What do they call that? Uh, rolling. It's a rolling boil. At this point, because now Judah's all up in the face of the elders of the Israeli uh, top 10, <laughs> the top 10 tribes. I'm just going to go with it now. <laughs> the northern tribes. And he's and they're they're all like, well, we brought him over because he's related to us like he's a he's our he's our father. He's our son. We're blood. We mean more than him than you and and he means more to us than he could ever mean to you because we're related it doesn't matter how loyal you want to say it doesn't matter that whatever you say doesn't matter because we've got blood blood is thicker than water i think that's from the 70s might be the early 80s i'm old so sometimes songs come into my head from way back all right so they're they're calling blood and they're saying why are you angry you, you can't change this. Why, why are you getting so heated? David likes us because we're his relatives. That's why David likes us. What, what's it to you? Why are you upset? You can't change that. Why are you trying to convince him? Did we eat any of his food? Have we taken any of his stuff? So, so what they're implying is that the Northern 10 tribes did that. Now, I don't know if they did it while they were at the River Jordan, but I have a I have a sense that when Absalom came into power, they started to raid the north some in the Northern 10 tribes started to raid the king's the king's provisions, the king's uh wheat fields, the barley fields, the livestock all the herds that were under the king's name, the northern ten tribes started to take, started to pilfer, started to raid. And the southern two tribes knew about it. And they took things that they knew, you know, that that they wanted, that belonged to the king. Maybe shelter, uh, barns, um, carts, things that, that that were needed by the king's uh, servants in order to plow the land and harvest the land. They were taking for themselves, and they took it in, in the name of 
probably, you know, that crazy name, that crazy word reparations, even though they might have had nothing to do with Saul and no idea about the, you know, about the, well, not that they'd have no idea about the back and forth, but they, they had, their families weren't impacted negatively by, by Saul chasing David around on the wilderness, but they were going to, they were going to take reparations for it. Oh yeah. Oh, well, your land belongs to me because that land used to belong to Saul and, and Saul was a member of the Benjamites and I'm a member of, of a different tribe, but you know, I'm really good friends with somebody who was really good friends with the third cousin of Saul, and they used to walk on that land. So clearly it now belongs to me because whatever. It's just, it's re- when you play the victim, you literally can never be satisfied. There's no way to satisfy a victim mentality. That's the, that's kind of the hideous uh, underlying root of victimization. It's the same as selfishness. You literally can, you consume yourself with yourself and you're still never satisfied. And I've heard of reparations in our culture. People want reparations for, you know, things that were done. Were they terrible things? Yes, they were terrible things. Were they done a hundred more years ago? Yes. And somehow a victim mentality says, yeah, but Somehow, some way, I should be paid for that. I should be given that. Or, or you know, we should tear it all down because it was built on land that belonged to whatever. It doesn't matter what transactions happen. It doesn't matter who owns the title. It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm related to somebody from somewhere 150 years ago or 20 years ago. So, therefore, it all belongs to me. It, a victim mentality is never, never never satisfied ever it and trust me the deeper you're in it the harder it is to get it is hard work you have to be consciously trying to get out of the victim mentality because it's just so easy it's so easy to be the victim and that's what happened here the israelites are being the victim and judah's being a victim and they're accusing each other of taking advantage of the king and trying to influence the king and saying, well, you know, basically denying that they're doing that. They're just accusing the other side of doing that. And it's getting ugly. And Israel comes back to Judah with, well, we have 10 shares of the king. So we have a greater claim to him than you do. Why do you treat us with contempt? Weren't we the first ones to talk about bringing him back? I mean, let's, let's talk about the facts here, Judah. The fact is, there's 10 of us and only two of you. So therefore, we have more right to him than you do because there's 10 of us and two of you. Majority wins. Majority rules, which is a horrible form of government, which is why America's a republic, not a democracy, right? Majority rules is, is a horrible way to run things. I heard it explained once this way, and you probably heard this too, right? Where if majority rules then three people come up to you and say we want your bike and you're like no it's my bike and nope it's our bike because there's three of us and one of you so we win we get the bike and you lose your bike but in a republic three people come up to you say that's we want your bike and you say no and they say yes there's three of us one of you and you say yeah but 
The law is on my side. And the law says, if you take this bike, you're thieves, and it still belongs to me. So they take the bike, and now they're thieves. They're not winners. They're not, they're not the ruling party because there's more of them. They're thieves because they've broken the law. And in the republic, the law stands with you, even if the majority is against you. Dun-da-da, little civic lesson here in the story of David. So they, but they, men of Israel are basically saying majority rules, and therefore we claim David, we have more claim on David than you do. Oh, and let's talk about the facts here, Judah. We wanted him first. There's no denying that. You can't deny that. I mean, you, I, I picture the, like the, the Middle Eastern, uh, they just have a, a completely different sense of personal space than we do in America. So I picture these two guys like so close and and just the spitting hatred that's coming out in the tones of the back and forth that's going on. And, and, and that one, you know, the first guy that says, and we wanted him first. Deny that. Deny it. You know we did. We wanted David. You had to be invited up here by David. You didn't even want him to be king until we were here. And Judah, of course, couldn't deny that. So then they'd go back to, yeah, but we're related by blood and you're not. Why do you even want him? Any? Oh, man. And it was just, it was on. And the men of, it says the men of Judah pressed their claims even more forcefully than the men of Israel. So there was, there was a fight going on. There was a fight going on. And the 10 tribes of Israel started to separate again. Like there was this hatred. This civil war was literally playing out again in front of David. And, re, and, and it's fascinating to me that David's silent through all of this, at least on paper. David's David's observing what's going on in his kingdom, and he's observing all these elders. And remember, there's several thousand people in which this is going on. So there's chanting and shouting, and there's 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 finger pointing, and there's activity of whatever. Probably not rock throwing yet, but it's getting close to getting violent. And David just watches all of this. And this is what, what what I think is probably going on within David, and that is he's looking at this and he's and he knows this is probably a picture of the nation. And even though I'm coming back, I crossed the river, I am coming back, the whole nation is not a hundred percent behind me, and probably hasn't been for a while. There are you know what what's playing out in front of me to a lesser degree, would be played out anywhere in the country if the northern tribes and the southern tribes were in the same room. And I think in this moment, David's looking looking around because because of what happens in the next chapter, and I'll I'll get to that uh, in the next podcast. I don't I don't want to. We definitely don't have time to do the next chapter in this one. But David doesn't pin his leadership. Right? He doesn't he doesn't pin his anointing on public opinion. And really he never has. The ups and downs of who people love and how long they love them, 
and how much they want them or not want them doesn't really impact the love that David has with uh, for God and and the understanding of the of David's uh, of God's love for David. He knows that he's loved of God and he knows that that he loves God. He knows he's he, you know God calls him his beloved and he and he lives there for the most part. He's very much aware that God loves him. And I mean I I, I know I mean I know in this whole podcast, right? I'm not pulling various psalms out and reading them to you, given, you know, the timeline that that a lot of these these psalms are tied into. And I know that those timelines can be really wrong. And I know that psalms, like any any sort of artistic expression, can be can be applied to multiple circumstances in people's lives, which is one of the reasons why I think God likes to use the arts in communication is because they're so adaptable and and individually I think it's why he likes to use dreams to communicate to people because you can have a dream and it can mean something so specific in your in your heart like right then and there and then 10 years later you remember the dream again and you start to think wait maybe this is what it was about so I don't tie it all back to the Psalms but you can see the constant theme in the Psalms of David that he does know that God loves him and he does know that he loves God. And I think this is one of those moments where David is sitting in this sea of hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness and pride and arrogance and self self uh, preservation and politics and 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 uh, uh, illusion. And false identities. And in the middle of all that, he's just, I mean, he's literally, I think, just watching this all. People have, uh, in, in the way that the language is written here, it's almost as though David becomes an appendage to everybody else's uh, agenda. Everybody wanted to bring David back because of what it meant to them and what David could do for them. And David, I think, gets sees it all. And rather than try and shut everyone up and say, I, you know, shut up, quiet, like you'd see in some movie, right? Shut up, everyone. Or if it was a Western, right, he'd take out his his rifle and fire it in the air and everybody would get quiet. And he'd give this great monologue and everybody would be like, oh, David's our leader. And they'd all come into line. David watches all this and instead of taking control, which is what so many people want, right? They're trying to get control of the situation. I think David goes internal and just becomes even more aware of how much God loves him. He looks at these circumstances and he says, "Wow, like this is this is pretty bad. Like this is not good. Not a good plan for uh for the nation." Yeah. But I know I know the Lord called me to this nation and I I might have lost it some of the direction and some of the vision that I had, but I see the results of that right here. And I'm hurting. I lost a son that I probably had lost years ago because I'm not a great father. I get that. I'm probably better than my father, but I'm not, I'm, I clearly am, have not been the father I need to be. And I haven't fathered this nation the way I need to. Oh, I know, I know. I've protected it. I've provided for it. I've done, 
you know, I've expanded it. I've, I've given it great influence, but there's something about the heart of this nation that I've missed in the heart of God. And I, I, I need to just really uh, be in this moment and understand that I'm still loved, that I'm still called, that I still have a role to play or I wouldn't be here. And man, that is, that is such a key identity thing for everybody. When you're in, in a moment that seems utter chaos, recognize and trust that the Lord is a good shepherd and he brought you there for a reason. That what you carry and who he made you to be is why you're there. It doesn't mean you have to manufacture something. It doesn't mean you even have to say anything. Just put faith and trust in the fact that there is something that you carry, something that you are, that is needed in that moment, and that's why you're there. And I think that's what David's doing right now. He's seeing this forceful. Remember, Judah's pressing their claims more forcefully than the men of Israel. It's gotten almost out of control. This is boiling and about to boil over. And I think David's in this sweet spot of calm. He is in the presence of God and just just realizing, wow, this is huge. And I am glad that I have everything I'm needed to fulfill my calling, which is always true when God calls you to do something. He doesn't just, you know, hope you come through. He's there for you. He's there with you. And he's giving everything you need for you to accomplish it. I think David's in that moment. I think he's understanding that deeply right now. And I think uh, when (gasps) you're allowed to read ahead, by the way, but if you go to 2 Samuel 20, then it boils over. Oh, sweet Lord, are we in trouble now? (laughs) And we're out. The Epic Narrative will be back again next week. Thanks for stopping by, everybody. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.